Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Gronyany A, and this week, what is the situation like for people fleeing Ukraine? Just a few weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, our reporter Niall O'Connor headed out to the edge of the Polish border with Ukraine to a mid-sized town called Shemish. There, he reported on the people fleeing from war, the concerns about human trafficking of refugees on the borders, and spoke to the Polish Minister for Transport about what further help countries like Ireland could give. Since then, images of murdered citizens in Bucha and other areas held by Russian forces have horrified the world, and over five million people have fled Ukraine. Russian forces are now concentrating its attacks on the south and east of Ukraine, with this expected to create another influx of refugees to the EU. Meanwhile, the Irish government here have admitted that they have run out of capacity in hotels to house Ukrainians and will move to more group accommodation settings instead, like in sports arenas. Last week, our reporter Cayman Burke headed back out to Shemish to see what had changed, how the response to the influx of refugees has matured, and to learn about how the brutality of the evolving war is having on those who are fleeing. We're very grateful that Cayman has joined us on the podcast today to give us an insight into what he saw. First of all, Cayman, talk to me about the scale of this migration crisis. Exactly how many refugees have fled Ukraine so far since Russia's invasion began? So an extraordinary movement of people in Ukraine. It's a country of 44 million and 5.3 million people have actually left Ukraine. On top of that, though, 1.2 million have actually returned. So you're left at a balance of just over 4 million people having fled the country due to Russia's war. The majority of those have gone to Poland, so 2.9 million. And then if you add in all the other countries that border Ukraine, so Romania, Russia, Hungary, Moldova, Slovakia and Belarus, if you put them all together, the refugees who went to those countries only comes to 2.75 million. So 2.9 million to Poland, 2.75 to all the other countries that that touch on Ukraine. Um, And then on top of that, we also have the massive issue of internally displaced, which actually outnumbers the refugees who have fled Ukraine. Nearly 8 million people um, are actually displaced inside Ukraine due to the massive destruction in urban centres. What I saw in Shemish was essentially refugee centre for people who have fled Ukraine, but right across the country of Ukraine, essentially in the western half, there are centres set up um, where people are living on beds, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people are living on beds beside each other, just because essentially there's not really anywhere else for them to be at the moment. So even though they're still in Ukraine, they're not in their own homes anymore or maybe even their own villages or anything. Exactly. Yeah. And the aid agencies will say that in a lot of ways, these people are in a worse situation than people who have actually managed to leave Ukraine. You mentioned Shemish there, which is a mid-sized town on the edge of Poland next to Ukraine. And that's often the first stop for Ukrainians on their journey away from their homes. Can you tell us about that town? Yeah, it's a very, very interesting town. So um, you see the the impact of the war, you you see it as soon as you land. So I landed in Zheshov, which is a, a bigger city than Shemish. Um, it's uh, essentially the regional capital. And then you take the train over to Shemish, which is just about 90 minutes away. And it's literally right on the border, about 15 kilometers from the, from the border with Ukraine. But as soon as you land in Zheshov, you see missile launchers in the airport pointing in the direction of Ukraine. So this essentially is NATO forces that are ready in case there is provocation from Russia. So military trucks, missile launchers all around the town. People in Zheshov will tell you about 
American troops being there. I had a taxi driver who said he constantly sees them in the gym. It's very striking. Just you're in the EU, you know, you're in Poland and then you see these just such hardcore, heavy military material ready to go. So Shemish itself then is actually surprisingly calm given all the movement of people that's going on through it. When I first landed in, it was actually Easter Sunday, um, which is uh, obviously a very big deal in Poland. So the train centre in the middle of town, a lot of uh, refugees passed through there. But then I wandered around the town itself and it's it was quite odd to have this migration crisis going on in the town. But then you'll see uh, families dress up really nice in like like we dress up for Christmas and oh, yeah. uh, taking photos in the middle of town. It's got it's got a lovely old square, Shemish, um, and it's got uh, numerous churches. Um, the deputy mayor told me that it's because throughout its history, it had so many different uh, ethnic groups like uh, Catholics, Orthodox, um, Jewish people that obviously changed um, during World War Two and also during World War One. It kind of went through its own migration fluctuations. So what we're seeing in Shemesh, like it has actually happened in this region before, um, which I thought was a striking point. So one of the most striking differences between your reporting and Niles, if we're comparing that gap in time, is where everybody was leaving Ukraine at the very start. We've seen a good few people coming back. And you mentioned that at the start about the figures returning. Why are they heading back? So uh, numerous reasons, I guess. The fact that the war is now much more focused in the east of the country has essentially given people the freedom that they think it's it's safe to go back. So Kiev obviously is the major population centre and it's no longer the focus of Russia's assault. But I saw people returning to all sorts of areas. So met a family going back to Odessa, which obviously is still probably on Russia's agenda, met people going back to Kyiv. And essentially, so a woman I met who was going back to Kyiv said she just said it was time for her to go back. So her husband stayed there. She left with her son and she just said, basically, it's time to go back. Essentially, they just want to get on with their lives. So the at the border crossing at Medica, which is just uh, 10 kilometers from Shemesh, um, you see people either traveling by car uh, are also walking and the volunteers on the ground will now tell you that essentially it's gone 50-50. Uh, 50% of people going one way, 50% of people going the other. There's also a um, huge amount of vehicle traffic. Um, when Niall was there first, so there was about 80,000 people crossing into Podgkarpaki, which is the region. And there's about three or four major uh, crossing points. And Medica is the biggest one. At the height of the migration crisis, about 20,000 people were going through that border crossing a day where I was. Now, across the entire region, it's down to around, uh, it was 15,000 over the course of last weekend. So essentially, it's just, it's dropped significantly. So what is influencing that? Is that the what that woman said where it's time to go back, that they can go back and they feel they should? Yeah, that seems to be that seems to be it. Um, she said she wanted to go back. Her husband was there, obviously, so that's a huge draw. They feel it's much safer uh, in the majority of the country, except for eastern uh, parts. And many who would have left would be from all over Ukraine. Um, you know, not just. Uh, areas that saw major fighting and they now essentially have decided that it's perhaps safe enough to return. And that's obviously been a feature of your reporting. Our reporter Niall O'Connor went to the Polish-Ukrainian border in mid-March and spoke a little bit about what he saw. Here's a clip of that. 
Okay, folks, here I am in Medica, uh, just on the border. Uh, this is where we've been the last few days. This is the closest to Ukraine. And this is where people are coming across on foot, as you're aware, uh, and also in vehicular transport. Still same high numbers. What I'm told here by the aid workers I've just spoken to, it's expected to be about well in excess of 10,000 people today. The only difference is the weather is much, much better. It's much, much warmer here, which will undoubtedly help them. It's so warm that the frozen fields have started to melt. There is, of course, the spectre of just to the north of here, up along this Polish border with, uh, with Ukraine. There was uh, 38 people killed at least in a bombing by the Russians on a supply depot. And that is causing a lot of tension here. People are all mentioning it and all wondering what it means. Um, but the resoluteness of the Ukrainians and indeed the Polish uh, they're just continuing on with the aid. Um, I think the, the only way to describe the, the atmosphere here is just getting on with it. They'll deal with whatever comes. That was a clip from Niall uh, saying that people are getting on with it, which is similar to what you were saying. I'm just interested, Cayman, in what else about the situation that is different now. Is it calmer because people have come to grips with what is happening? Are people more traumatised? Getting on with it is exactly how I would summarise the situation. So in that sense, it's very similar to what Niall encountered. But at this stage, there's less people. So it's it's definitely calmer than the situation he encountered. Also, it's it's embedded nearly at this stage. You know, it's been going on it's six or seven weeks. Um, so people are familiar with it. But also the people who are travelling at this stage, particularly the ones who are leaving at this stage, Trauma is is a huge issue. Um, you know, some of them may have their their towns may be destroyed, their homes gone. They may have had to spend prolonged period of times in a bunker. Even you know the idea that you might be a target because civilians do seem to be targeting is quite like it's a big thing for people to be concerned about constantly. Yeah. So even speaking to, uh, I was talking to a doctor from Médecins Sans Frontières. And she was just saying the fact that civilians are being targeted has such a huge impact um, on the work they do. It just makes life so much more difficult for Ukrainians. It's so much more stressful. So uh, she was obviously talking about the Kramatorsk train station um, attack, where essentially a, a train station full of people who were just trying to leave the east of Ukraine was hit. Like even when I was there, um, Lviv was hit by a rocket attack one of the one of the nights I was there. Now compared to even the attack that was that occurred when Niall was there where nearly forty people were killed, this one was a more limited strike, but nonetheless there was about six deaths. And the people at the border were saying that they were expecting an uptick in the aftermath of that. And indeed, I was talking to someone in the humanitarian aid centre who had just that day had been speaking to a woman who left after that strike because she'd encountered, she'd originally come from the east and then she was like, oh, now it's not even safe here. So she just decided to leave. So what type of stories did you hear from people who were fleeing Ukraine? There's literally just a range, I counted a range of different people going in a range of different directions when I was there. When I first arrived at Medica, which is the border crossing, I just went to look at all these cars that I was seeing going into Ukraine, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, there was just a man sitting there on the side of the motorway. I got talking to him. Turns out he was he was his name was Pavlo. He was from Kiev, and he'd essentially been sitting there for ten hours. And he'd seen the traffic go from three lines going on for 
well over a mile down to one line um, still going on for well over a mile it's just an almost an unending stream of cars uh, going into Ukraine um, but he'd been there for 10 hours and basically his wife had gone back to their home in Kiev to essentially collect stuff from their home now they were it happened to be in Paris when Russia launched its invasion and they just waited until they thought it was safe enough to go back get stuff but they have left Ukraine for now so they are relocated to Krakow and they're going to stay there for the foreseeable future at the train station then I met a woman named Natalia and her little son and they were actually going back this is who I alluded to earlier so also from Kiev they left in early March and went and stayed with her cousin in Germany. Her husband was involved in the defense of Kiev. Now, obviously, it never came to uh, warfare in the city. But nonetheless, she was incredibly nervous about his involvement, but also seemed very excited, actually, to be going home, um, which I thought was quite touching. Then you had uh, met another woman uh, also at the train station. Her name is Tanya. She was go. She was actually leaving. She was from a small enough town near Odessa in the south, and essentially she lost her job. Um, she lost friends. She lost family members, and she just wanted to. She just wanted to leave it behind. So she was going to Katowice in Poland, which isn't too far away. Uh, she was going to stay with a friend there, but then she seemed committed to going to Berlin, and she just seemed to say. I'm just doing something else for now. The most memorable people, though, throughout the entire time there were at the Humanitarian Aid Centre. There was, I just, I, can't, I encountered this couple and honestly, they were an incredibly interesting looking couple. Like, you'd look at them like, they're two cool people, you know, but I wanted to speak to them and just, just to see what they, if they'd have anything to say. But they just, they actually, um, a lot of Ukrainians, it can be difficult to speak to them because they're, I have no Ukrainian, are, are Russian. And um, there wasn't a huge level of English. But these two just said, I'm really sorry, we can't talk about it. Um, now, they both were um, extremely pale, uh, which you'd see, I saw a lot in the humanitarian aid center. Uh, people would be very pale. Effectively, a doctor there told me it's prolonged periods uh, in, in a bunker or else trauma. But those two just basically said, I'm sorry, we, we, we can't talk about it. When you when you're talking about how serious the situation they're coming from and, and how, you know, the, the supports that people need when they're fleeing from Ukraine, what is life like for them when they cross the border? Are there camps or you mentioned medical assistance from Médecins Sans Frontiers? Is there temporary accommodation? Are there supports for children in particular? So you they crossed where I was. Now, there's several border crossings. Um, as I said, many, many people who leave Ukraine go through Poland. There are several border crossings. Shemesh is one of the biggest ones. Um, so they'll cross at the border. They'll often make their way to the humanitarian aid center in Shemesh, which is it's essentially in a huge, in a quite big disused shopping center, um, which is odd because it's it's actually very like shopping centers we have in Ireland. Um, there's you know there's units all at the front, which would have been smaller shops, and then there's a big huge grocery store at the back, and this is all being repurposed into. It's almost it's mostly just beds, just bed after bed after bed after bed. And then there are some um, there's obviously medical assistance, there's food and there are volunteers from countries throughout Europe. They're effectively operating as kind of volunteer travel agents, organizing flights, 
buses, uh, trains for people to go from that centre to various um, European countries. So while they're in the centre, essentially they're sleeping right next to somebody on row after row of beds. Like imagine a, a Tesco just full of beds with all the shelves gone, uh, just beds everywhere. And the, the lights are permanently on. You can't turn the lights off. Um, obviously, a, a lot of people travel with animals because they have animals. So there's there's dogs, there's cats, there's people everywhere. And now the authorities in Shemesh try and uh, limit people stay there for uh, two days at most. And then they'll move on to either other aid centers in Krakow or Warsaw or other parts of Poland or else the volunteers will have organized a journey for them to Germany or Ireland or Denmark or wherever. But nonetheless, I, I did see people when I was there who'd been there for a prolonged period of time. There was a child, actually, a 16 year old when I was in there, who was at the Irish desk and he was considering coming to Ireland. He was talking to the volunteers there, but he had no he had no parents. So um, they were trying to work out if he could travel without parents. So he was a 16 year old. So, yeah, that's a, a kind of the kind of situation they're met with when they cross the border. So is it easy to access the areas bordering with Ukraine? And did you cross into Ukraine at all? So it, it's I wouldn't say it's easy. Um, it's and for good reason. So when I first arrived at Medica, I was speaking to a lot of um, volunteers there and they actually cross regularly to go and provide blankets and stuff. And my plan was originally to travel to Lviv the following day. This got changed as there was an airstrike in Lviv overnight. So we had to change our plans. Um, but volunteers were saying that, you know, you can just cross um, and see what the situation is like on the other side because I wanted to see what the queues were like uh, in terms of people coming in and also there's a huge kind of area for people who want to join the Foreign Legion there so I I tried to cross the border went through the Polish side and arrived at the Ukrainian officials and told them my plan so I told them I was I was planning to travel to Lviv the following day and after some discussion they basically said just go to Lviv tomorrow and uh, <laughs> so yeah no that never happened uh, I just got turned back at the border so you pass the polar side then you walk a few hundred meters and you see lines and lines of trucks and cars effectively going from Ukraine into Poland and then you come to the uh, Ukrainian passport check and that's essentially where I got turned back so uh, the reason for this is there obviously they need good security there. There is all sorts of people at the at the border. Um, there are people who want to go into Ukraine to go and fight for Ukraine. Um, some of these have military experience. Some of them don't. Uh, the ones that don't are obviously probably more dangerous themselves than anything else. There's also Russian saboteurs operating in there, monitoring the situation, feeding back information, that that type of thing. So. They, it is right that they don't just let anyone in or out. Just to take a look at how your reporting fits into the wider picture about the refugee crisis in particular, are the aid organisations that are helping Ukrainians well supplied to deal with the crisis? Is there something big that they're lacking in being able to deal with it? Yeah, so obviously Shemesh and the situation there is just one area in terms of a whole bigger picture. So there's aid centres all across Ukraine. There's aid centers in Poland, Romania, all the countries around. And then people are going from there on to other countries. In terms of what I saw on the ground there, 
there's no real Irish NGOs on the ground in Shemish now, so Concern are kind of concentrating their efforts in Ternopil, which is a region to the east of Lviv. So it's it's in western Ukraine and it's not too far from the border, but it's um it's not in Poland. So they they say they're doing this because um the internally displaced is, is such a massive issue, and and that makes sense to be fair. Uh, Goal are also operating Lviv. Trokra ha, its partners Caritas were. Uh, are operating in in Shemesh and uh, at Medica. The situation on the border is quite interesting. When when I arrived up, I thought I expected it to be like um, the major aid organizations you would have heard of, um, you know, UNICEF and uh, Red Cross and so on. But it's not really like that at Medica. Um, so UNICEF are there. Uh, they have a tent there. It, it wasn't operating the, the days I was there. Um, what's more the case there is there's essentially like a patchwork of smaller volunteer organizations, some of whom were, one of, at, least, at least one of whom was just set up in response to the crisis. Uh, Hope from Italy, a religious groups such as the Sikhs were there giving out food. There was a group of... Um, they call themselves the new federal state of China and basically they're opposed to the Chinese Communist Party. They have one of the largest tents there um, providing refugees and volunteers with food and, and anything else they'd need. So effectively, the situation in Shemesh and and Medica, it's only a, a snapshot of the whole wider situation. So the big organizations are across the whole region, you know, Ukraine, Poland, uh, because Shemesh got a lot of uh, publicity early in the um, crisis, so effectively it became a kind of hub for for people who wanted to help to go. So it was actually quite heartening to see the kind of efforts being made by essentially uh, smaller NGOs and, and and volunteers. You spoke to some Irish aid workers while over there as well. Were there many Irish workers uh, helping out in Shemesh and what did they tell you when you spoke to them? Yeah, so I encountered uh, Irish people at Medica, um, so they would have been like giving out food to people who arrive and stuff. But the big Irish um, sort of presence I saw was in the humanitarian aid centre. So this is the essentially the temporary home for hundreds and hundreds of Ukrainians who arrive. And in there, there are, along with the hundreds of beds, there are these desks where effectively a desk with like an Irish flag over it and the Irish volunteers are basically sitting there offering people information on what it's like in Ireland um, how they can travel to Ireland organising flights for people even actually just today I saw that today they're organising a flight carrying 40 40 Ukrainians from uh, over to Ireland Um, now they there's a lot of kind of stumbling blocks and things that they have to overcome so one um, the flights at the moment, the moment from the area are extremely expensive. So around five hundred euro to fly from Zeshov to Dublin, and this is a tiny airport that basically just houses some Ryanair flights and some internal flights. So they like those flights would have been very cheap in the past. I actually know someone from Zeshov, and he was saying like you you'd be able to fly for 30 euro or whatever, typically. So the flights have gone up, you know, exponentially. This makes funding the travel much more expensive. So in order to overcome that, they're doing various things like organizing buses or organizing um, trains to other areas, particularly Germany. So 
they're actually sending a lot of Irish people from through Frankfurt uh, over to Kerry um, just because that was the most sort of economical way of doing it. Just talking um, about the presence of Irish people in helping out the humanitarian response, it's interesting because the Taoiseach was saying at the weekend that because we're military neutral and we can't help out that way, we have to do all we can from a humanitarian perspective to help Ukraine. So how does this play into how many refugees Ireland has taken in so far? Are we doing well from that perspective? Well, the latest stats show that nearly 30,000 have received PPS numbers. So Heather Humphreys was uh, just said yesterday, I think the figure was 27,000. Now, as it's evolved, it's become pretty apparent that a lot of Ukrainians see their future very much back in Ukraine very very soon so a lot haven't gone too far and we've we've seen many traveling home so 27,000 PPS numbers now the figure would probably be higher people who haven't received PPS numbers uh Humphrey said that off this 14,000 are off working age so in terms of how that's doing Ireland has actually a very good reputation there in the Humanitarian Aid Centre. So Olivia Fian, who is one of the volunteers on the ground, was telling me that there are people coming from German volunteers, American volunteers, Israeli volunteers, bringing people to the Irish desk saying, you should go here. They offer this and that. The, uh, these people um, are very helpful. So Ireland does have a good reputation on the ground there. What about the problems Ireland's facing in housing and supporting Ukrainian refugees right now? What are the big obstacles, I suppose, going on from the point we're at now? Well, they're the major problems we've been talking about for years. They're not new. Uh, Childcare, schooling, housing being the biggest one. Um, so these are problems that have been failed to fail to be addressed for years. So talking to volunteers, NGOs, they hope that because this is such a tragedy that's unfolding, their hope is that it finally gives the government the impetus to actually solve these issues um, because the Ukrainians don't really have options. The delivery to help us to actually overcome these problems is a huge task. But people are hopeful that because it's essentially such a crisis effectively that we haven't seen for decades, that hopefully will be the impetus to try and overcome these issues. Finally, Cayman, did anything surprise you about your experience or is there one big takeaway from the whole thing that you think is important for people to know? Yeah, I mean, it was a um, it was a very interesting, it was a very humbling experience, to be honest. It was very sad in many ways to see to see people effectively packing up their life into a bag and um, leaving their life behind, you know, bringing with them what, all that they can carry effectively. But I, the thing that struck me originally when I got there was that many of them are doing very well. Um, one volunteer just said he, he was struck by how resilient they are. Now it's, it's nine out of 10 people traveling are women and children. So he's, he was just talking about how the Ukrainian women are like, just doing so well, managing families, managing themselves, traveling out of their home country. Um, and he was struck by how resilient what they were. And that's exactly what I what I encountered. I was like, I was incredibly impressed by how they're just getting on with things. Now, you do see people who are uh, clearly very traumatized, um, which uh, and then also people who would have suffered, you know, severe uh, injuries uh, such as lost limbs to look at it many of them are doing really well 
there is severe issues in terms of trauma for many people who are traveling. But anyone I encountered, pretty much everyone said they just wanted to go home. Yeah, that's a that's a kind of a very human thing that I think a lot of people can understand. What can you do but just get on with it? Or, yeah. But, and you would miss home, of course, because it's t- taken away from you so quickly. That's a brilliant insight into what you saw, Came, and thanks so much for coming in to tell us about it. Thanks very much, Grania. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and thank you to our good friend Cayman for speaking to us today. This episode is brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry and my co-presenter Michelle Hennessy. This is my last time presenting an episode of The Explainer, so Michelle Hennessy will be presenting full time from next week. Thank you to the team here for all their help, and I'm really looking forward to listening to the podcast as an outsider and enjoying all the brilliant topics and guests that the team choose. Thanks a million. Slán Pamel. <laughs> <laughs>